This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. About every eight weeks, my friend Bill drives from Wheaton to my home in East Aurora, and on the way there, on Saturday morning, he picks up a bagel at Jake's Bagels in downtown Aurora. And this is very important. It is a real bagel, which means it's baked or steamed, or, or um, boiled or steamed before it's baked. Now, having lived near New York City for 10 years, that's a really big deal for me. Right, Sarah Roney? Um, so you know the difference. And I will make some dark roast French press coffee. Bill will bring the everything bagels slathered in butter, and we will sit there on my front porch if it's warm enough or in my living room, and we'll just spend a couple hours eating the bagel, drinking the coffee, talking about our kids, about life, about our work, about the Lord, about books we're reading, about music, whatever. Now let me give you another scenario. Halfway around the world, the western highlands of Papua New Guinea, there are some villagers, or there might be soon, there will be some people in a small village that you've probably never heard of that's really hard to get to, who are preparing for a day-long feast called a mumu, M-U-M-U. -M -U. And a mumu is something in particular to the Western Highlands especially, where it's um, the men will kill a very large pig and butcher it, and the, women, the men and the women will dig an underground oven heated by large stones, and they will, the women will take cow cow, which is a sweet potato, various kinds of vegetables. They'll wrap all the meat and the vegetables in banana leaves, and then they'll layer it in this earthen oven, cover it, cook it all day, and then the next day, they will have their mumu feast. There's singing, there's dancing, there's rejoicing. And my son tells me, you know, the best part about it, Dad, is that every person that's there, no matter how big or small or rich, or poor or important they are, they all get exactly the same amount of food on their little banana leaf plate. Two very different scenarios, but they have this in common. Doing life together around a meal. Not just food, but around a meal. They are both places to be known and to know others both places to heal our loneliness, our sense of disease, that we are disconnected from people. You know, one of the lies of our age is that we could solve our separateness, that we could solve our loneliness through technology. And it has helped. There's been some good benefits. But overall, our technology that we have created, which we have made, which has in some ways made our lives really efficient has, I think most of us agree, made us also more lonely, more angry, more fragmented, less trusting of each other, more diseased in our relationships. So when we come to this gospel reading and we see Jesus gathering his disciples around a meal, it is just so gospel. It's so good news. It strikes so much at the heart of what it means to be a human being in relationship with other people and in relationship with God. So turn with me in your Bibles to page 907 for our gospel reading from the Gospel of John. Um, and notice the way that this, this lit it's a literary unit, 14 verses. 
It's like a frame. And so I, I want us first to see the frame and see how, and see what goes into the frame. Notice verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself this way. That's kind of like the sides of the frame. Here's the other sides of the frame. Verse 14. This was now the third time that Jesus revealed, was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. This idea of Jesus revealing himself to make himself known, to make himself accessible, to make himself so that we could be in relationship with him after his resurrection. That's what this story is all about. How is he going to reveal himself to us who now live 2,000 years later in a different culture with a different language? How will he continue to reveal himself to us? And we might think, well, maybe he's going to do something really spiritual, right? Really, or maybe really intellectual. Give us something to think about. Instead, notice what he does in this passage. He gives a simple, life-changing meal. Look what he does in verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread, all prepared by Jesus. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, this great command, come and have breakfast. And then in verse 13, he serves them breakfast. He becomes their waiter, and he serves them. It's something not spiritual, not intellectual. It's something physical. It's something that they can taste and see and smell and eat. We do this every Sunday. We call it the Eucharist. And Eucharist is from the Greek word, in the Gospels, when Jesus, at the Last Supper, and he breaks the bread and he gives thanks, it's the word to give thanks, Eucharisto, to give thanks. That's where that word comes from. So it's a good word for the Last Supper. Now, technically, what's happening in John 21 is not a Eucharist service, but it is Eucharist-like. And, and I'm going to argue it's an echo of the Eucharist. It flows into and it flows out of the Eucharist, and it embodies everything that the Eucharist is about, which namely is communion with the risen Lord Jesus in the midst of his people. That's what the Eucharist is all about. So we could talk about meals Jesus had, and then we could talk about the meal that Jesus had with a capital M, the Eucharist, and I'm saying that they're all part of the same package, although the Eucharist is a little different. But let me talk about what this teaches us about the Eucharist. Three things. First, it is a meal for sinners. Secondly, it is a meal for mission. And third, it is a meal for union with Jesus. First, it is a meal for sinners. Look at verse 3. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. Now, there's a lot of debate. Why are they going fishing? Well, probably because they're hungry and they need to get food. And this is how they know how to get food, meals for themselves and their, for their families. But notice this. They went out and they got into a boat, but that night they caught nothing. A big, fat dud. So their motivation might have been good to go fishing, but I think this becomes for us a picture of what Jesus described earlier in the Gospel of John about what it's like 
to live a fruitless life apart from union with Jesus. Let me read to you a very familiar, a first a verse you might be familiar with. John chapter 15, 5. Jesus says this. He compares himself to a vine, and we're the branches. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I think there's an illusion between those two verses that this is a picture of what it looks like to do life, try to do life apart from Jesus, and to catch nothing. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. Jesus comes to them, standing on the shore, calling out to them, pursuing them, not when their lives are successful, not when everything's going right, not when their family is perfect, not when they feel good about themselves, not when they feel like they're righteous Christians, but when they are failures, when they are sinners, as the gospel tells us. This theme, we also see this theme in verse 9 of chapter 21. Let's look at that again. It says that when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. Now, it has been alleged that Deacon Will actually writes my sermons. I have, that has been alleged. I won't say who has alleged that, but it has been alleged in the passive tense. Um, and I just want you to know, that's not actually true, but he does contribute to my sermons, like this sermon. So three years ago, Will preached on exactly the same passage, and he pointed out, so astutely, by the way, he pointed out that there's only two places where this word for charcoal, this Greek word in the original language for charcoal fire occurs in the whole Bible, in the whole New Testament. And the other one is in John chapter 18, 18, where Jesus is being hauled off and being interrogated, and he's going to die on the cross, and Peter was with people. He's denied Jesus once. He's going to deny Jesus two more times. And verse 18 of chapter 18 says, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire. Because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves, Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. So what's he doing as Jesus gets hauled off? He's just standing there warming himself by the fire. We could call that the fire of failure. But Jesus invites him in this passage after the resurrection to another charcoal fire. We could call this the fire of grace. So important that Jesus reveals himself to sinful, struggling, failing, fruitless disciples. You know, if I could go back to my younger self, my 20-year-old self, or my 30-year-old self, or my 40-year-old self, I think this might be the first thing I'd want to tell my 20, 30, 40-year-old self. Do not hide your sins and your failures. Don't try to pretend they're not there. Bring them into the light. So long, I thought my image of righteousness was actually better than sitting around that fire of grace. You know, if you follow the Lord long enough, 
you will see that you fail and you sin in ways that you never thought you would imagine. But the fire of grace is warmer and better and hotter and more alive and brings more light than you ever imagined. As one of my mentors said, failure makes good manure. When we bring it to the Lord Jesus, when we confess it to him. So the Eucharist is in particular a meal for sinners. As Jesus said, it's not for the righteous. It's for sinners and people who are first willing to own their own sin. It's also a meal for mission. It's not just mere sinners, but it's sinners trying to live under the lordship of Jesus, on mission for Jesus. So verse 5, Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? Or maybe better translated, you don't got any fish, do you? And then as Will read this so well with that, did you notice the disappointment in Will's, the way Will masterfully read that one word? No. It was read so well. That disappointment, that heartache, that, and then he says, well, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some fish. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of the fish. So there's something really important going on with this word that it says the haul of fish. Let me, let me track this. Track this with me for just a minute. So the haul, that word haul in the original language means to, to drag or to, it could mean to attract to somebody or to something, or it can mean to draw. So first of all, in verse 6, there's this haul that's so big they, they can't even haul it in. And then in verse 11, Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, the same word, full of large fish, 153 of them. Now remember, Jesus has already told them in other gospel accounts that they're going to be fishers of men. So fishing becomes highly symbolic for mission, fruitful mission. Now, let me read to you something else, okay? Because this word is used again. It's actually used in a couple times. It's the same word for haul. It's used in John chapter 6 where Jesus says, I'm going to draw people, to, I'm going to draw you to myself. Same word for haul. I'm going to haul you to myself. And then in chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus is talking about dying on the cross. He says, and, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw or haul or drag or attract all people to myself. Wow. Jesus is actually the one that's doing the hauling. He is hauling the fish to himself. But he's letting the disciples, he's letting us cooperate with his hauling, with his attracting, with his mission. You know, in some ways, I think on most days, not every day, but a lot of days, I think I have one of the greatest jobs in the world. I really do. Because I get to see something that all of you only see like little bits and pieces of. And what I get to see is, is not because I'm morally superior or I'm more spiritual or anything like that. It's just because of my job, my role. I get to see the diversity and multiplicity and the beauty of the body of Christ 
you, many of you, sent on mission throughout the week. So I get to see and work with people who work with refugees or who go to the jails and visit prisoners or our Sanctity of Life team, this little team which does so much for not just for the unborn but for mothers and their families. I get to see our replanted families who have done something that touches so deeply the heart of God, adopted or fostering. But I also get to see many of you in your jobs, or I know about your jobs, and I know that you think of your job as a vocation, and you employ people, and you work with people, and you are promoting human flourishing for the glory of God. And no, we do not do this perfectly. Yes, we could do a lot more mission, and we could do it with a lot more love, but when I stand back and look at that picture, I go, wow, this is amazing. When Bishop Stewart asked me to start working 10 hours a week at Church of the Resurrection, 10 hours a week as the local mission pastor, because Father Gregory Whitaker and, and Heidi Whitaker were moving to Cambodia, he said, Matt, we have to keep ministering to the poor, to the marginalized. It's just too important to me. It's too important to the Lord. So would you consider coming on for 10 hours a week? And I thought I'd been really clear with him that I was done with pastoral ministry. But I said, okay, I will do it 10 hours a week. And he said, I, I know you'll probably only do it for a couple years. I said, yeah, it'll probably only be a couple years. Okay, that's fine. And we agreed. That was eight years ago. So I'm still doing it. And one of the reasons why I love it is because of the body of Christ. And it's not some great strategy that we have, like as pastors, like we can go, oh man, we are so strategic, we're so amazing. No, it's because Jesus and you, in partnership with Jesus, are doing the hauling. You're doing the drawing. So when we celebrate, every time we celebrate the Eucharist, we think of a meal and mission tied together. It's always tied together. So you can't have the meal without the mission. That's to misunderstand the whole heart and life and ministry of Jesus. But you also can't have the mission without the meal because you're cutting yourself off from the source of life. They go together. This is a meal for mission. It's a meal for sinners. It's also a meal for union. I love that verse 9. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. It's, it's the way the text is written, it's, it just suggests that it's just like, it's kind of like neatly organized. It's, 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 it's thoughtful. It's carefully placed. It's almost like we would say it's like liturgical. Like there's a liturgy to this. He didn't just slap it together. This was done with care. Like, you know, you don't do a muumuu without intentionality. You don't do it without planning. It's liturgical. Many meals have a liturgical element to that. So this is liturgical. In verse 12, look what Jesus says. I love, I love the command. He gives a command. You know, earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, if, if, if you love me, you will obey me. So here's something to obey. Come and have breakfast. Let me give you a commandment. Come 
and have breakfast with me. And then in verse 13, I love this. This is so moving. Jesus came and took the bread and he gave it to them and so with the fish. Earlier in John chapter 13, what does Jesus do? He gets down on his hands and knees and he washes their feet, the work that a slave would do, the lowest of the low. And now look at him. He is serving them. He's becoming a waiter to them, serving them, God in human flesh, because it's about union. It's about communion. Jesus wants to draw us to himself and into his life. When I was a young pastor, 35 years old, I was pastoring in Barnum, Minnesota, and you all know about the Finifrox, right? Willis and Kay. So, and their fame and their amazingness. But I have not told you about Clyde Johnson, who was this 91-year-old widower, Norwegian farmer. Uh, he and his wife, Eileen, never had kids. He spent most of the 10 years of his life before I got there taking care of his wife, who had Alzheimer's. And I would visit Clyde in the local, local nursing home, and he was really hard of hearing. So we would sit there in rocking chairs facing each other, and a conversation would go something like this. How you doing today, Clyde? Oh, not bad. Going to the fair today, Clyde? Yeah, maybe. Hey, that was some storm we had last night, right, Clyde? Woofta. That was some storm. And then we'd both get tired of me yelling and him trying to hear me, and so he'd said, well, so why don't I get some grape juice? So he would go fumble around the kitchen, and he'd come back about five minutes later with a little six-ounce glass of grape juice like it was like a $100 bottle of Merlot, you know? And we would sit there on rocking, dueling rocking chairs, just facing each other, rocking, sipping, smiling, I could see Clyde on Clyde's face like, I got all day, nowhere to go, so glad you're here. And I thought to myself, as a young pastor, I thought, this is such a waste of time. And it's like, we're not doing anything. Like, I want to change the world. I want to do stuff. I want to grow this church. And eventually, I did grow the church from 75 to 115 people. It was massive church growth, you know? But I wanted to do stuff important. Now, if I'd go back to my 35-year-old self again, I think I'd say, Matt, that was important. Just being with Clyde. That was important. You know, most of the ways I've gotten off track in life is just simply not being able to be present to people, really be present. This is the center of what we do at the Eucharist. We are being with Jesus, and he is being with us, and we're doing it together with all of us, and it is the most important thing we do every week. Be with me. Share a meal with me. Eat with me. That's how we break down barriers that is how we grow in trust, not only with the Lord, but with each other. So I'm going to say, I was uh, talking to Canon Stephen be right before the service, and he wanted to pray for my sermon. I just said, you know, Canon Stephen, what's on my heart more than anything is I want the Lord to restore 
or grow or renew or inflame in his people a joy to be with him, a joy for the Eucharist, a joy to gather around his table. So I say, come. The Lord says, the Lord Jesus says, come, you who are lonely. Come, you who are struggling. Come, you who had a bad week. Come, you who weep for the world's brokenness. Come, you who long for justice. Come, you who are ready for mission and you want to pour yourself out. So many important, urgent things crying for your attention. But this is the most important thing we'll do all week. Long ago, on a beach beside the Sea of Tiberias, Jesus had breakfast around a charcoal fire. It wasn't exactly a Eucharist, but it was Eucharist-like. Today, in a refashioned plastics manufacturing building, Jesus invites you. And he says, come feed on me in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Week after week, we do this until it becomes who you are and it becomes who we are. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.